chapter 6, verse 2b. I'll tell you where that is on page 993 in your pew Bible. If you get there, it should be pretty easy to find. It's the far right column. If you look at verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3, there's a little bit that's there right before it in the same paragraph. And that's where we're going to begin today. I hope to get to our text that we heard read a moment ago. And I hope to get to the very front of the book, which is going to say largely the same thing. The book is written by St. Paul, the ambassador of Christ to the heathen. That is, unlike the other apostles, he was not sent to the Jews first. He was sent to non-Jews. And as a result, he planted many Christian congregations throughout the Mediterranean world at a time where if you had to be a betting person, do you think Christianity makes it? You'd have to say, not very likely. There were very few of them at all compared to today. And you might notice that today people are afraid about Christianity perishing, but we have far greater strength than we did then. Nonetheless, Paul goes preaching the gospel that he is risen. Alleluia. He goes preaching that gospel through the Mediterranean world, leaving in his trail a number of Christian congregations. Timothy, who was his co-worker, who journeyed with him, he leaves behind in Ephesus, a major city where Paul spent several years teaching, in order to make sure certain teachings stay and certain teachings do not stay. He says that at the start of the book, here again, he's going to say the same kind of thing. And I want to start because the language is so clear. He says first, chapter 6, verse 2, start of the next paragraph, teach and urge these things. I'm just going to stop there. These things. What's that? The book of 1 Timothy, right? Everything written in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul wants Timothy and all pastors after him to teach and urge. Yeah, These are not options. These are not more like guidelines. These are what God has surely said life is. In fact, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, that doesn't mean dusty old books written by men. That means something different than the scriptures. Remember, we talked about that word last week, didaskalos. Do you remember that? Say it. Didaskalos, doctrine, teaching. If anyone teaches a different teaching, and does not agree with the sound words, that means healthy words, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness. We'll talk about godliness here in a moment. If anyone doesn't agree with that, though, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Think of how harsh that language is. So you say to your friend, Jesus Christ is God. And he says, yeah, I don't know about that. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And doubly so if he says, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, and I know the Bible says this, but. And we can pick the favorite ones, six-day creation, homosexuality. Those are the hot-button issues today. But it's bigger than just that. We can pick things like man and woman being created orders that are natural and never change, in which in marriage, man is the head of woman. That's in chapter two of this very book. Many people don't like that teaching today, but they want to say Christ gave us a spirit so we could continue to see new revelation. 
or as it was very common about 25 years ago in some of the mainline churches, maybe you remember seeing these street signs, don't put a period where God put a comma. Yeah? The idea there is that the Bible wasn't done yet, and we have to update it to be more in line with modern sensibilities. Such a person is puffed up with conceit. That person thinks too highly of him or herself, and they understand nothing. Further, he says, verse 4, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. Did God really say? Does it really mean that? Well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and a quarrel about words, which will produce. What's the result of false teaching, especially in the church? It produces envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And verse 5, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. That means their mind is corrupt and deprived of the truth. That means they don't know the truth. They live in a lie. They've got mass formation psychosis telling them how to think. They can't see the ground in front of them and call it what it is because they believed the teachings of demons. We'll come back to that too. But what is at the root of this end? The end of verse 5 is very clear. All false religion imagines that godliness is a means of gain. What's God done for you lately? If I become a Christian, how is my life going to get better? This is really about me and what I get, isn't it? That you can see behind all false teaching because it always tries to say, if you do this, then you'll get that. If only you'll do this, then you'll get that. That is not the gospel. He is risen. That is not the truth that will never pass away. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Instead, that's a teaching of self-justification. There's some Lutheran talk, right? Our whole fight with Rome is over how they say you must justify yourself by submission to the Pope, by pilgrimages, and all this other stuff. And we say Christ has justified us. My godliness is about Christ not about what I do to get more for me. Verse 7 then says, For we brought nothing into the world, right? We are God's workmanship, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But, he says, verse 8, If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. This is the secret of contentment talk that leads into, I'm going to skip verse 9 and just go to verse 10, the idea that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the same idea, to believe that godliness is going to bring you more in this life is to miss the point that godliness is the fact that Jesus has superseded this life, that he's already left this life behind and descended into the next one, and that the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes you believe that much is the next life already here inside of you. And what wars against this truth of the Spirit in your soul is your belief that this life matters so much. I kind of struggled a little bit with my letter, Voice of the Shepherd, this morning. I didn't know. Am I going too far? Am I talking about politics too much? Am I pointing out things that I shouldn't point out about our society? But I hope you will see that the point of the letter is to tell you how everything about this news wants you to make this news your religion. 
It makes you to make this news the most important thing in your life. Give your time and your money to making this news go away or be more of or whatever. That's the danger. That's the distraction. That you would possibly end up as slaves in Egypt and think, therefore, God's not with you. When the fact is, God is with you. So cry out to him rather than put your trust in the riches of this life. All right, teaching and urging these things, closing the book by emphasizing the centrality of godliness. Let's look at that text now. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. This is what we heard read here a few moments ago. It's the very heart of the book. It's smack dab in the middle of the entire book. And he repeats this idea that he wants Timothy to understand what to teach. Verse 15, if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That is the church, right? The church is not a building. The church is the people who have been gathered by God out of this world to believe in the coming kingdom of his son. We are to know how to behave, which is different from the world because we are in him a pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, we don't walk in lies. We don't walk in envy, conceit, and ignorance. We walk as people who have the revelation of God, both in his law, that is what we're to be, and in his gospel, that is what he has done for us. Now, lest we confuse these things, he gives us verse 16 here, right? So he just said, I want you to know how to behave. And then he says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness, Most people hear the word godliness and they think it's about how we should behave. A godly man, he's the one who acts a certain way. Now, don't get me wrong. Ought a godly man be seen to be godly? Yes, he should be pious. But that's not how Paul is going to define godliness here. The mystery of godliness, he says, is Jesus. A whole poem about Jesus who was manifested in the flesh. That's incarnate of the Virgin Mary, right? Same, same idea, different language. Vindicated by the Spirit. Other places we see, that's resurrection talk. That he wasn't left in the grave and thereby proves his righteousness that he was worthy to die for our sins by rising again. That's the vindication of the Spirit. Seen by angels. And of course, we can remember all the many times in his life those angels show up, whether it's the Garden of Gethsemane or over Bethlehem or when he's being tempted in the wilderness or when he resurrects from the dead or at his ascension. Angels are there the whole time, right? But don't miss that the word angel means messenger and that the messengers of the witnesses to his resurrection also saw him, touched him. And from the beginning, that which we have seen and touched, like St. John told us two weeks ago. So he was seen not only by the angels of heaven, but by the messengers of his kingdom, so that he was from them proclaimed among the nations, not meaning France, Germany, Italy, meaning not Jews. The nations, the Gentiles, those who are not of Abraham's bloodline and descent have heard this good news. That's what Paul's saying right now to Timothy. Where is he? He's in Ephesus amongst a bunch of heathen who are no longer heathen. Because they've come to believe in the mystery of godliness that as Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus will come again from where he has been taken up into glory. That's the end of the poem there, right? The ascension. So what you see there is the kernel of our creeds. We have three creeds that we confess from ancient times, the apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian. We do that one once a year. Maybe you remember it's a bit long. yeah. But here we see the same idea. 
Because it's not about a specific set of narrow words. It's about what those words mean. The reason those specific narrow words, apostles and Nicene Creed are so valuable, is because they've worked for so long. They've lasted because they hold the truth so clearly. And the reason for that is that they were forged in controversy. They were forged in argument where people had to debate those who said, did God really say? And had to search the scriptures for the clearest language they could find. They even had to find a way to confess against the heretic the words in ways scripture doesn't say. The Nicene Creed has one point where that happened in controversy of one substance with the Father. Kind of a tangent, but worth knowing all the same. Okay, so the mystery of godliness. Everything else that we see in this letter is going to tell us how we are to behave. But the mystery of godliness is that Christianity is not about how you are to behave. So don't miss that. The mystery of godliness is that Christ has died for you. And he is changing you then by that death. His atonement, his blood purchase means you're his now. And where you were blind, he's going to make you see. Where you were lost, you're going to be found, right? Where you were depraved, you are now regenerate in your mind. Able to stand on the pillar and buttress of the truth, which is, again, these holy scriptures that will never pass away. Unlike this life. Yeah, this life. Um, I jumped away from chapter 6. I want to jump back to chapter 6. We're going to look first at verses 17 through 19, where it talks about this life. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works. It is a common sickness of Americans that we think and desire to be wealthy. In one very real sense, the concept of retirement is godless. Now, don't get me wrong. If you manage to invest your funds and you can retire, go for it. But the idea that that's what life's about Life is about slaving away now for money so you cannot slave away and do whatever you want. That's godless. That is to not believe that you need God for your daily bread. It's to think you're going to build a house out of sand that the wave can never wash away. If the last two years have taught me anything, it's how brittle the sand is. You never know when God is going to wash away what you think is secure. And so the warning here, again, is not only for the rich, but for all of us to not place too much certainty in this life. But going back to that language about contentment, to see that today is its own gift and is all that there is. And in fact, if all goes as well as it could possibly go, there won't be a tomorrow. For Christ will come back and we will be raised and the glorious kingdom will begin. Now, I don't remember where I said this. Maybe it was yesterday on the Saturday show. I live between two worlds here. I live hoping that's what happens. I hope tomorrow morning never comes. And yet I've lived long enough to have to kind of believe tomorrow's going to come. Yeah. And part of me is pretty convinced this is not the end of the world. Just because the U.S. is wobbling like a top doesn't mean 
the cosmos is about to be rolled up like a scroll. It's pretty arrogant of us to think such things. So part of me is convinced it's going to go on for a good long while. But the secret of contentment is not to put any hope in that. It is to say today is today. And as Paul will say, scoop back in chapter 6 to verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now jump down to verse 11. But as for you, notice that Paul does not say to Timothy, and again, this is for you as well. He does not say you're like this. He knows that you're tempted by this. But you're going to want to be different because you're born again from the dead in Jesus Christ. So as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What? Flee envy. Flee dissension. Flee slander. Flee evil suspicions. Flee constant friction. Flee thinking that you will make yourself wealthy by being godly. Or that your religion is about having your best life right now. Flee those things and pursue righteousness which can mean not only good action, but also the atonement which Jesus has provided for you. Godliness. He already defined that one, right? Godliness is who Jesus is. Pursue that. Faith. That's trust in who Jesus is. Love. That's not only knowing what Jesus has done for you, but knowing that what he has done for you is going to be who you are to others now. Steadfastness. That means you're not going to move. Even though the whole world is shouting at you, don't believe it. You're going to say, Jesus said it. I believe it. And then gentleness. This is where we don't take the truth and bang people in the face with it. Rather, we learn the patient reality of standing firm and being okay. So that, and you've seen this in the news at various times, someone might be screaming in your face and you're able to hold your calm because you know you're already justified. You don't have to prove yourself right now. Right? They're making the fool of themselves. You want to be gentle with the truth that you have. Verse 12, one of the most famous lines in the entire book. Fight the good fight of the faith. I want to amplify this here. Both the word fight and good are vanilla words. The way this happened, by the way, is that the King James Version was the first version to translate the Bible into English. And they made an effort to pick words that everybody who was alive then would know. In that way, they made the first dictionary there was in English. There was no Webster's back then. What that means, though, is that over time, the way the Bible is normally translated became the most common language, the most used language, which means that over time, it also became the most boring language. So we have other ways to translate what it says here in the Bible in English. Fight the good fight. Here's how I would translate it. Wage the beautiful war. Now, we like to think of war as a bad thing, don't we? But that's not what he says here. He says the war is beautiful. What war is beautiful? The one that is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this present darkness, against demons and unclean spirits who would lead you astray. Again, we'll come back to that text here in a moment. Wage the beautiful war for your faith. How? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. What's that? And how would you take hold of that? By believing that it's true. Huh? 
Christ is risen from the dead. That makes you paid for. That makes you immortal now. To take hold of that is to believe it's true. And to not let any other story dissuade you from coming back to that. Do I mean that you're never going to feel temptation? No. Do I mean you're never going to doubt? No. I doubt every day. My emotions wage war against my confidence constantly. That's the war. And the beautiful war is to fight back with your mind. Yeah? Take hold of your heart with the will to believe the Bible's true. And then, if you're going to fight, you need to pick up the sword. What is that? The Bible itself. Which is why this entire year, book by book, how to read the Bible, what's the goal? To get you to open the book at home every single day, if only for a few moments. That's how you wage the beautiful war. Yes? Fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I've been talking with my children about confirmation recently. It's a matter of importance in the household right now. And I, I, I haven't explained it well enough, I guess, but I tend to complain about confirmation because it's not in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that says before a baptized person comes to communion, they must turn 14 and go through two years of instruction on Wednesday evenings in the back room and then never come to church again afterwards. Like none of that's in the Bible, right? But what is in the Bible? This is interesting. Again, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, he says to Timothy. Now, again, this isn't about confirmation. It's actually about ordination. It's about the sending of a pastor and making sure before you send a pastor that he's been tested and approved to teach what ought to be taught. But you can nonetheless take this and apply it to yourself. When you talk to yourself about fighting the good fight of faith, you can remember, if you were confirmed, what did you do? You stood up in front of the church and you said, I believe it. I believe it. And I would rather die than not believe it. So now he charges us, verse 13, to keep that. Yes? Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot in there right there, but just the charge. Hey, you, before God and Jesus on judgment day, don't forget what you believe. That's the charge, yeah? Remember how last week and the week before with St. John, we talked about the word commandment and how easy it is to tie that in our heads to the Ten Commandments and how easy it is to think it just means law at that point. But let's also remember that it's not just that, that when Jesus says, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, he isn't just saying, do this, don't do that. He's also saying, teach them that he is risen. Alleluia. <laughs> so to keep the commandment unstained, it's a simple thing is to believe the Bible's true. To study the Bible like it's your daily bread, like it's the word of life, like it's your hope, like it's your anchor, like it's your sword. Yeah, that's the charge he gives until the day of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 20 and 21 of that chapter before we leave chapter 6. This is the close of the book. 
but you can hear the impassioned plea. The apostle's emotions are here. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Uh, Guard the deposit. What's that? Your faith. You've believed in Christ. So fight to stay with that. That's what it means to believe in Christ, to not be satisfied with this world, but to know that a perfect world is coming for whom you have been purchased. Yes? Guard that deposit that also you can know is the Holy Spirit of God, a person of the Godhead working within you against your flesh to keep you in the faith. How would you guard the deposit? He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That is to say, again, it's not that you can't study two plus two and find out it usually equals four. Believe it or not, there's math that says it doesn't, but we won't go there right now. Two plus two equals four. Is it knowledge? Yes. Is it saving knowledge? No. Can you go to heaven not understanding two plus two? Yes, you can. That's his point. And people who would then come in and confuse what is simple by all of these questions about, did God really say that's what we want to fight in our hearts against? For he says, verse 21, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Uh, One of those verses in the Bible that shows you, you can fall away. And how do you fall away? By listening to false teaching. That's how you fall away. So from there, why don't we hop over to chapter 4, which we heard read a little while ago, and we get this warning about the later times. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Later times. The language of the latter days is common in the Old Testament. And we really must understand that these days begin with John the Baptist showing up. They're inaugurated with the baptism of Jesus. And they are instituted once and for all with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We know this because Peter on the day of Pentecost says, this is what the prophet Joel says in the latter days. He quotes it. So you have to believe the end times began when Jesus rose from the dead. Paul, I don't think is being so narrow right here. He just means what's going to happen after the apostles. After you have these inerrant preachers who were sent to the world in order to build the congregation, after they move on and leave behind men chosen and selected to teach in their stead, there's going to be others who come in and try to teach differently. And the Holy Spirit expressly says, you are to expect this. You are not to be surprised when you see the Christian church divided by teaching. It is expected. What you are to do is to dive back into the Bible and ask, which of these teachers is a hireling teaching for his belly and which is a good shepherd teaching what the scriptures actually say? Now, he will tie false teaching here. And this is so very important, I think. He ties it to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. It is, without question, one of the hardest things to believe that our warfare is against unclean, dark spirits. You can think it with me. I I think think that, Pastor. I agree with you on that. And you're going to walk out today, and you're not going to think about demons again for a week, if not longer. 
You're not going to go to the Bible the next time you read it and be like, okay, I'm going to fight the demons right now. It's hard to think this way because the modern world has so convinced us, it's in the water, that these things aren't even here. But if you take the New Testament seriously and the timing of what goes on around Jesus, you have to believe that these guys are everywhere. They're all over the place. And they're trying to pull people into darkness. You can also know that everywhere that you go, not everybody, but everywhere that Christians go, there's also angels. Yeah. So here today, around us, we're going to sing it in a moment with angels and archangels, all the company of heaven. Here today, we are guarded. Here today, we have a host of lights that we can't see that's going to sing praises with us, who long to look into these very same things because it's part of their future as well. So again, you're going to go out from here. You're going to not be alone. But if you don't pick up your sword, then the angel may or may not be able to help you. Because it's through the word of God that you're both going to be strengthened. And then when you run into the demon, it's not like you're going to be in a dark alley and some guy with a tail and horns is going to show up laughing and offer you to sign a contract on blood. You're just going to have the TV on. It's just going to be talking. And you're not going to think about it at all, but you're going to believe what it says. And over time, it's going to destroy you. That's the danger. That's the war to realize that the demons fight with messages. The demons fight with teaching. Now, Paul's going to give us two of these common false teachings in verse 3. First, verse 2, he, he does mention that those who teach such things, their consciences are seared. Don't assume that everyone's got a conscience like you do. Assume that those who aren't Christians have no conscience. Huh? That they've seared their conscience against the truth. That's how we end up in a state of government like we're in right now, by the way. That's my personal opinion. We got, we got seared consciences up there. They don't care. They're just doing what they want. But in, other, in any case, the false teaching will be summarized in two different things here. That they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Now, are there more false teachings in the world? Yes, absolutely. But these two tend to show up again and again and again. Marriage is the easy one to see because the devil and the demons, they hate humans. And the way that God makes more humans is marriage. They don't want that. And so one of the things they always try to do is convince women to kill their children. And if we think we're new in this abortion idea in America, not at all, not at all. Abortion is the common practice in the history of the world. Killing infants, whether it's for the gods or because you don't want to feed that mouth, that was normal in every heathen culture there's ever been. What's weird is how you had an entire civilization arising in the West that believed the Bible says humans are valuable even if they can't do anything, even if they cause us suffering, even if they're born with disabilities that make them not as complete as the rest of us. They nonetheless have value because they're humans. And so you had a whole civilization becoming those who believed in the value of the person. And gradually they built governmental systems based on that same idea. Of course, again, when we began killing babies, we began teaching everybody humans aren't of value. So why are we surprised to have a governmental system that doesn't think people are of value anymore? Oh, we shouldn't be. And again, it's not about the government here. It's about recognizing what's the devil always wanting to do destroy humanity, 
destroy humans. And the best way he can do it is to get mothers to murder their own children. And also the way he can divide and destroy is by tearing marriage itself apart. Before we legalized abortion in America, we legalized divorce. And now it's gotten to the point where it's no-fault divorce. That is, for whatever reason, and in any way that you want, and who cares and why get married anyway, is what the next generation has begun to say. Huh? All of this is the teaching of demons, trying to destroy the family, trying to keep humanity from living in the way that God made us to live. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that our ancient foe, the Roman Catholic Church, also forbids marriage to its priests. And this has caused a number of problems within their history, things that have to do with homosexuality and child abuse and things like that. And if you think, Pastor, that's kind of mean of you to say, look, we were saying this 500 years ago, and it's still going on. It's not like it's new here, but see that when anyone says you can't be married or you shouldn't be married or marriage is bad or stop the marriage, that this is going to be because unclean spirits are involved in the ideas. Yes. And then food, food. You want to get religious with somebody, have a conversation about what they eat. You'll find out quickly how spiritual we are, how much our belly is tied to our heart. Huh? And the point here is not to say that some foods aren't bad for you and others are good. That is very true. I mean, there are things you can eat that are quite terrible for you. The point, though, is that that's not what Christianity is here to say. You can eat a bunch of junk food and die young and still be saved. Now, do you want to do that? Is that wise? That's a different conversation. But don't confuse godliness with what you eat unless you're going to think about the Lord's Supper. But of course, the text isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. It's talking about those who will come along and tell you that part of your religion is to live this way with this food. And if you want a real clear example beyond not being allowed to eat meat on Fridays, okay, for this sucker punch there for a moment, beyond that, think about the Far East and how the belief that the cow is a spiritual being that's a higher quality life than all humans. And so we should never eat cows. In fact, we should never eat any animals, but only eat vegetables, right? This idea is a religion. You can call it veganism if you want, but Hinduism is the one behind all of this stuff. And this then is a teaching of demons to think that what you eat is your religion. Yeah? As opposed to understanding your religion is about pursuing love for other people, pursuing the love of God for you in Christ. Yes? All right. So he says everything created by God is good in verse 4, and nothing's to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, which again is to say you can, <laughs> you can even eat some deep fried corn syrup and say thank you, Jesus, and you can eat it. It won't affect your salvation. You, you might spend some time in the bathroom later, huh? uh, but, but it's not going to affect your salvation directly. Okay? Um, it's not about food. All right. So before this section, you have chapter 2 through chapter 3 that give us a strong statement about the life of man and woman and about what pastors are to be. I'm just going to read this for us. We won't have time today to go through it all the way, but I think it's important that you be exposed to what it says here, okay? So I'm just going to start at the beginning of chapter 2 and read for a little while. It says this, 
First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I do not lie. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, man, woman, now pastors. Chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, Greek episkopes, you could translate it as bishop, it means pastor. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And now, some more exposure. Jump to chapter 4, verse 6. Huh? He's, he's summarizing, but he's also encouraging. These ideas are not opinions. They're the word of Jesus, and they're worth fighting for. Verse 6, if you put, chapter 4, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, that's before the Christians, you will be a good servant, that's the pastor, a good pastor of Jesus Christ being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for, there's that word again, godliness. He is risen. <laughs> Alleluia. For a while, here's food. For a while, bodily training is of some value. 
Godliness, that's trust in Jesus, is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Do you hear the pattern yet? I mean, does Paul want us to say this stuff over and over again? Teach and urge, command and teach. Stick with this word. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was young. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's what we're doing. Yeah? Uh, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not the, neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Uh, that is probably referring to his ordination again. To close, I want to look at one more section. Chapter 1, verse 12 and following. Another one of the most famous parts of 1 Timothy. We do have a hymn based on it, um, which uh, we probably will not be able to sing today, but some of you will recognize uh, it when, I, when we get to that text. Here, Paul is talking about his own salvation, right? So never let it be thought, Paul thinks that by keeping the law, he saved himself. It's quite the other way around. He knows he has no worth in his own mind, but God has done something miraculous. He's judged Paul, an unfaithful man. He's judged him faithful. And the result is that he's become faithful, yeah? God doesn't love what's lovable. He loves the unlovable. And in so doing, it becomes lovable. That's the good news. That's the grace. That's how God turns the world upside down. Chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I want you to read that part with me here again, starting with that Christ Jesus. Let's read that aloud. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we're standing firm in Rockford, St. Paul. That's why we're like Mount Zion that cannot be moved. That's why you are a tree planted by streams of water, because you now believe that. That even though in your heart you will find temptation, even though the beautiful war needs to be waged every day, you also know firmly God has judged you faithful by putting you into the inheritance, which is the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Your baptism is the seal and sign where he has washed you by water and the word, a precious promise, a discipline unlike any other and then also that washing is into the fellowship, the common shape of this altar. 
that no matter who we are, what we've done, or where we come from, this same God who is risen descends right now to enter into you and bind you to his glorious resurrected body, making you therefore the body of Christ. Not you alone, but us, the church, the assembly, those who have a hope for the life to come. So indeed, I say again, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.